All right, if you would, take your Bible and open to Galatians chapter 3. So we are going to finish up the end of Galatians chapter 3, and we're also going to go into the beginning of Galatians chapter 4. These are two distinct passages, but they are closely related enough that I wanted us to take them together today. I think they, you could do them separately, uh, but I think they make sense today to, to pull them together. And so we're going to look at the end of Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to look at the beginning of Galatians chapter 4. And if you have one of those Galatians journals that you've been working through, or you may just have your phone in front of you with access to the scriptures, I'd love for you to be able to, uh, to pull those up. Roger's going to come and uh, get, our, get our TV set up here for us as well. Let me say this uh, before we get into the text this morning. If you uh, aren't already aware of this, and you probably are, during our second service at 1045, we have an extended care time for our birth through three-year-olds. Now, our pre-K through first graders, they go to a children's church time next door, but we also have preschool care. And... Let me not mince any words and just say directly, we need more preschool volunteers during our second service. We've got a lot of little kiddos coming up, and Miss Amy tries to work it out on a rotation where you only have to serve every eight weeks if it's set up perfectly. Usually every six to eight weeks, but her goal is that you only serve once every other month. And so I know many of you in the early service, you guys are heading to Sunday school after this time. So you would only be missing Sunday school once every other month if, if this plan works out. But let me just say we could definitely use more volunteers. Um, so if you can help us with that, if you could send Amy an email at amy at emmausokc.org, that works. The other option is immediately after the service is finished, Amy is going to be at the uh, coffee bar area. So when you exit and you turn to the right, she'll be right over here. So should you be so brave as to be able to walk past Miss Amy and not sign up for uh, helping with the, with the preschoolers, you can, you can do that. Uh, or if your conscience is bothering, you can walk out of another door uh, when you exit here in, in a little bit. But just know... Uh, we love, love, love the fact that God continues to bring young families to our church. We want to care for those little kiddos. I know you want to care for those kids. The guy who was my mentor, or one of my mentors, I guess it was kind of the, the second guy in college who influenced my life the most. He had served overseas in different areas. He had done so many different things for the church. He, when he came to church on Sunday morning, he worked with two-year-olds. He could have done anything. This was one of the most brilliant men I've ever worked with. He was a part of kingdom work around the world, doing stuff underground in East Asia. But when he came to church, he worked with two-year-olds. He said, that's where I want to give, give my time. And so I always think about him when I think about these questions of how do we serve our preschoolers well. Also, I want you to know that uh, Compass Christian School starts this week. That's our weekday preschool program for two-year-olds through kindergarten, and they put a lot of work into that. So I want to pray for Compass. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to look at God's Word together this morning. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of being able to gather on Sunday morning to worship you, to sing and pray together. God, thank you for those who are watching at home. Uh, Father, thank you for the gift of the way we've been able to connect online over the last several months through, through some really difficult times. But God, thank you for our church members and, and friends and family who are able to watch at home. God, we pray for Compass Christian Preschool as they begin this week. God, thank you for Crystal and her team and all the work they put into caring for those preschoolers. 
God, thank you for the way that uh, our church through Compass is able to connect with so many families who aren't part of church, who aren't connected uh, to, to a local church, and we're able to tell them about the good news of Jesus through this. God, thank you for Amy and all the work that happens behind the scenes with preschoolers here and, and those who are able to serve and teach those kids Bible stories and psalms and rock babies and push that little cart around the hallways. God, thank you for the gift of the way you bring us together, not just to watch a service, but to be a family. And so God, this morning from scripture, remind us that in Christ we are family. And God, show us what that looks like. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we get started this morning, that's, that's our thought, is, is family. Because from the scripture this morning, we're gonna see two different family portraits of what it means to be the family of God. So as we're looking at these verses this morning, I'm gonna walk us through, and in your mind, I want you to leave with two different family pictures, family portraits. Now, when you think about family portraits in your own background, your own family, there's probably some cute family portraits. Uh, There's probably some embarrassing family pictures uh, in your background. There's probably some good stories when somebody looks at the family picture, they just see your family and you say, oh, if you knew everything it took to get to that picture, like you, you would be impressed. When we were young and poor and had one kid and we were living, we were just getting started in, in marriage, uh, we really wanted to do a fall family picture, but we weren't sure that we could afford to do the, you know, go and get your portrait done type thing. And so Amanda said, where could we go and do a family picture that had like a fall background? She's like, you know, Walmart, they always have like, uh, so we went and we did family pictures in front of Walmart in front of their fall display. And, you know, as people are walking by, I'm trying as the husband, like, uh, we're just over here. Don't, don't worry about us. So we took family pictures in front of Walmart one time. Uh, if you go back and look at my childhood pictures, I got car sick everywhere I went. My, my parents are angels to have ever taken me anywhere. I got, they're like, oh, Owen, you look so pale in all of your childhood pictures. Yeah, it's because trying to get to the portrait, there's a good chance that I got, I got sick on the way. And you know, who hasn't had in one of those big family pictures a kid fall off the stool and bust their nose? And so in the picture, you've got the one kid who's crying or angry or bleeding. Or Family pictures bring all of these memories back, all of these things about what does it mean to be drawn together as a family. From God's word, I want to show you two pictures this morning. So here we go. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Let's lay the groundwork here. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So Paul's going to begin to use what to us seems surprising. It's this uh, imprisonment, slavery type language, but you're going to see the way he's going to wrap it together here in a minute. There is a key word at the end of verse 23 that I don't want you to miss, and it's the word revealed. Remember that for Paul, the good news of Jesus is not something that he has discovered on his own. It is something that has been revealed to him. You go back to Galatians chapter 1, and this is the type of language that Paul uses about the gospel, that he didn't discover this because he was more intelligent than everyone else. That this is something that had been revealed to him by the grace of God. Verse 24, so then, Paul says, in this situation, the law that law given by Moses, that law of the Old Testament that we would call it, was our guardian until Christ came in order that under Christ we might be justified, made right with God by faith. 
So now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that word guardian is one of those fun Bible words that when you start to peel back the historical layers, you find a lot going on there. The word guardian had to do with that when a boy reached the age of about six, one of the older trusted slaves in the family would become that boy's guardian. And what this old slave would do is he would carry the boy's bag on the way to school. He would walk the child to school. So you think about a friend that carpools or takes your child to the bus stop. There was someone assigned to this boy from about the age of 6 to the age of 14, and they would care for this kid, protect the kid, help shape them morally. Uh, So the kid's going to school They don't want the kid to run off and miss school. They don't want the kid to punch somebody else on the way to school. They want this kid to grow up. So this person would go with the child to school, stay with them at school, learn what they were learning so that when they came home, they could help with homework. They could help with development. They could help apply all these lessons. Children in this time had a guardian. They had someone who went with them along the way to help shape their life and protect them. Paul said, The law, the Old Testament law, he wouldn't use Old Testament, obviously, but we think of it as Old Testament. The Mosaic law that was given has been the guardian of God's people up to this time. Protected God's people, helped shape God's people, but was not meant to be the permanent overseer of God's people. The law was given for a particular time so that when the Messiah came, when the Christ came, the law would no longer hold that guardian law. Just like when a kid got to 14 or 15, they no longer had a guardian who went with them to school and watched over them all the time. That kid had grown up. That kid had reached a new stage in development. So Paul is saying now, under Christ, the people no longer have the law as guardian. They have reached a new stage in God's plan. Instead, verse 26 says, now, in Christ Jesus You are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. (laughs) Some verses just seem to be overflowing with good New Testament theology, and this is one of those verses. If you're a Bible underliner, Bible highlighter, Galatians 3.26 is your friend here. This is just unbelievably full of good New Testament theology. When Paul is talking about the Christian life, his favorite phrase is in Christ. This is Paul's go-to phrase to talk about the Christian life, is that we, don't miss this, are no longer under the law, but we are in Christ. That we have a union and a relationship and an intimacy with Christ that goes so far beyond what we have if we were just under the law. So Paul says, in Christ, you are all It doesn't come across in English because it doesn't read well, but the word all is actually the first word if you read this verse in Greek. It is the prominent word in this verse is the word all. Paul says that in Christ, you are all sons of God. Now, you say, well, what about the women? Well, here, when you see the word son, Don't think manliness, don't think male gender, because Paul is going to begin using language about inheritance. And remember I said that the sons are the ones who had guardians who took them to school because 
Oftentimes in this culture, the girls would not have been going to school. And so Paul is going to use son language, not because only men are in Christ, but because the idea he wants to get across can only come across as he uses this language about being sons of God. And he's even tapping into Old Testament language about Israel being the son of God, Israel being the people of God. So Paul says that in Christ Jesus, you are all, every one of you in Christ are sons of God through faith. Not through the law. We are not justified and made right with God through the law, but through faith. If you're ever reading the scripture with someone who's not a Christian, or you're just trying to talk to someone about the basics of Christianity, then you can do worse than Galatians 3.26. Like this is a good core passage for telling someone, this is what I believe. This is the foundation that, that New Testament Christianity revolves around, that we are in Christ, that we are all sons of God. We become part of the family of God, and it happens through faith. Now, watch the picture that Paul uses to describe this in verse 27. In verse 27, he says, for, let me give you an example, let me tell you what this looks like. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The picture here that Paul gives to describe this is is baptism. Now, there's no confusion, should be no confusion from these verses that how are we saved? It's through faith. And baptism is a demonstration. It's a display of that faith. Sometimes uh, if you've grown up in church, if you've been around church a long time, uh, we would use language about somebody coming to the front, walking the aisle at the end of the service, and we'd use phrases like your public profession of faith. I know what we mean by that language, but let's be really clear. From the New Testament, your public profession of faith is baptism, not walking an aisle. <laughs> that is a tradition that's been built up, and there's nothing wrong with that tradition. I'm not saying the tradition of walking an aisle is a bad thing, but I'm saying from the New Testament, when we talk about your public profession of faith, it's baptism, that my hope is in Christ, I have trusted in him, and then I show that, I display that through baptism. Baptism, where the beautiful thing, when, when I go up behind there for when we're, when we're doing baptism and, and pray with people beforehand, I always remind the person, this is not just about you being baptized, but this is about people who are there in the congregation watching you because in your baptism, they are seeing a picture of the gospel. That when that person goes down into the water, it is a picture of dying with Christ. It's a picture of Christ's death. And when you come up out of the water, it is a picture of the resurrection, of the fact that death no longer has power over you. This is why I love baptism for our little kids to be able to watch. This is why baptism is so important for people who are not followers of Jesus to be able to see this on display, that in baptism you see this picture of dying and rising with Christ. It's a reason that, and I know this is a complicated argument, it's not the main part of what we're talking about this morning, but it's also a reason why we don't baptize babies, that when we have these commitment services for parents and their little kids to be able to commit them to the Lord, that we believe that from Scripture, baptism is related to faith, that when a person has trusted in Jesus for salvation, that baptism is an expression, it's a commitment that the person is making, and so that would not make sense, as we understand Scripture, for, for a baby, but it is something that we point our kids toward. And so you find here this language of being baptized, this picture of being in Christ. But here's something interesting. So, in baptism, 
You go down into the water, you're, you're dying with Christ, you're, you're dying to your past that your sins have been forgiven, you're, you're showing that you believe that, you come up out of the water. In the ancient world, when they would practice baptism, when you came out of the water, you would get a new white robe to put on. We've been baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. Now at Emmaus, we give you a t-shirt, which seems very keeping uh, with, with, with Emmaus, that we don't give you a robe, we give you, we give you a t-shirt, you get your baptism t-shirt. But this language here is so beautiful, the way that Paul does it, that you've been baptized into Christ, that he is your hope, he is your life, and when you come up, you put on Christ. What does it mean to put on? Uh, this is, this is kind of like putting on a jersey, that when you put on that jersey, you represent that team. When you trust in Jesus for salvation, you take off the jersey that says me, and you put on the jersey that has a big cross on the front. Because your life, you are putting on Christ. Uh, or to use our, our family picture analogy, if you've ever had the, uh, let's find the right word, uh, the blessing, the joy of taking a family picture in which everyone was instructed to wear the same shirt <laughs> or everyone was instructed to dress up in the same way and you're like, you're, you're gonna wear this shirt. You go on vacation and someone gets the idea that everybody should wear a family shirt on, on vacation as a way of saying we're all in this together. This is kind of the idea that's going on here that you have put on Christ. And guess what? When you have put on Christ, new identity, new behavior, new values, the way I live when I wear the Jesus jersey is gonna be different than the way I lived when I wore the jersey that said me. And sometimes we make fun of the idea of wearing Christian t-shirts around, but you think about the way you feel self-conscious when you go out in a t-shirt that represents Christ or represents your church, and you're like, oh, I need to live in a way that shows that I really believe this. Guess what? It doesn't matter what you are wearing on the outside. In Christ, you are always carrying around that identity. That the way that I live should show that I'm a part of, and let me just play with this analogy, I'm a part of Team Jesus. <laughs> that, that I'm identified with him. That I have put him on. And that shapes the way I talk, the way I live, the way I act, the way I relate to people around me. Specifically, look at verse 28. Here's where it gets really real. Verse 28, in Christ, for those who have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that when you have been baptized into Christ, when you have trusted in him and you've put on that team uh, jersey or that family shirt, you are one. The themes in the world that divide us, culture, ethnicity, race, social standing, lots of high social standing, low social standing, gender, male, female, those things in the world that would divide us, Paul says that in Christ, those are no longer divisions, that we are together as one. Now the question is, why would Paul use these particular things um, ethnicity, social standing, gender, why, why would he talk about these? Well, there's, a, there's several reasons, actually. The first is related to inheritance. In this time period, Gentiles were not seen as those who would inherit the things of God. Females did not have the same standing when it came to inheritance. 
Those who were slaves, who were low social standing, they were not going to inherit the same way. And so Paul says, your inheritance in Christ is not based on anything of this world. Also, you think about the idea of circumcision. In Galatia, people were trying to force the people to be circumcised to show that they were part of the people of God. Paul says, well, most Gentiles, by, just by nature, were not circumcised. Women, uh, that's not going to work. And slaves didn't have a choice. Paul says this is not about circumcision. This is about being in Christ also. And this is one of those things you don't know whether to, to laugh at or cry at. But there was a prayer um, in, in this time that was often used both by Jewish and by some Greek men. But here's the prayer. You would wake up in the morning and you would say, Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me a slave. Blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. Uh, I mean, that's the way to start your day. Huh? Praise be to God that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Paul is taking that prayer that many of the people would have known, and he is completely turning it inside out, saying that in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. In Christ, we are one. Verse 29 if you are Christ, if you are in Christ, Paul says, then you are Abraham's offspring. He's already talked about Christ himself being the fulfillment of that promise of Abraham's offspring, but now we are a part of that. We are heirs according to the promise. So, here is family portrait number one. Family portrait number one, I don't actually have a portrait, I've just got a description of it. Imagine a picture, everyone wearing their new Jesus baptism t-shirt with no divisions in the picture based on culture, social standing, or gender. Now, the days are almost past when we call Olin Mills in to do like a church directory photo. I know it's probably been years since we had the old school church directory uh, photos or the photo where you get the whole church family out front, though that would be a lot of fun to do. Can I ask you a question? If someone was taking a picture of Emmaus, would that be true of us? That we are gathered in the name of Jesus and that when people look at us, they don't see divisions based on what divides the world around us. And we don't even need to really help making the application here, the fact that we live in a pretty divided world where these sort of issues consistently push us apart, and yet in Christ we are brought together, not because of what we bring to the table, but because of the one that we trust in, because of the jersey and the family t-shirt that we wear, that we are in Christ. So picture number one of the family of God is that we have on our baptism t-shirt, we have on our Jesus t-shirt, and we are gathered together as the family. Now, let's watch the next picture. It comes in chapter four. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul's going to use a different analogy, but it's very similar. He says, I mean, and, and what I'm saying, that the heir to the family, as long as he is a child, is actually no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under, there's a similar word used here, but it has a different nuance to it. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Here's the analogy being set forward here. It's the fact that when kids were waiting to inherit 
their family's wealth or their family's property, that during the time that they were waiting to inherit those riches or inherit that property, they had a financial manager. They had a financial guardian who took care of their assets, who watched over that inheritance. Because as a kid, if you find out you're going to inherit some money, you're like, man, that's a lot of Nintendo games I could buy, or that's a lot of shoes I could buy, or, you know, we don't do much better when we're adults. But uh, especially as a kid, do you want that kid to have access to all of this wealth, to all of these assets? No, they're not ready to handle those things. And so just like they would have a guardian who took them to school, they would also have a guardian who watched over their inheritance, who watched over their assets. Verse 3 Paul says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, and now he's going to use this analogy of the people of God waiting for the Messiah, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Let me just tell you straight up here, Bible scholars can fill a lot of pages arguing over the meaning of elementary principles here. It's a, it's a really sticky word that it's hard to figure out what to do with. It's used in Colossians. It's used in a couple of other places. At its, at its base form, it just means the ABCs. It was even used in the ancient world just to refer to kids learning their ABCs. It can also refer to the worship or the veneration of the planets, or like fire, earth, water, air, that type of idea, the elementary elements of the world that that you're upholding those as the things that have power over us. Paul says that when we are children, we don't know much more than our ABCs. We don't know much more than basics. We don't know that there is actually a greater power beyond what we can see in the sky. There's something more going on here. Verse four, but... When childhood was finished, when we reached puberty, when, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul said, for all these years, Abraham, Moses, leading up to the time of Jesus, we were like children. But when the fullness of time had come, when the Roman Empire was in place, when the Greek language and culture was spread, when the Jewish people were again in intense conflict, when God said, this is the time, he sent his son, born of a woman, born into this world, born under the law so that he could fulfill the law, so he could do what Israel was never able to do. And for what purpose was the son sent? Here's a great verse, verse 5 was sent to redeem those who were under the law, to purchase them back, to rescue them, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Picture number one at the end of chapter three was baptism. Picture number two at the beginning of chapter four is adoption. That in Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. In the ancient world, you often adopted someone because of what they could bring to your family. The Roman emperors, the leaders, if they didn't have children or if they didn't think very highly of their own children, they would go out and adopt someone else to come in and be a part of their family. Thank God it doesn't work like that in Christ. 
that we are not adopted into the family of God because we are worthy. We are not adopted into the family of God because of what we can bring to the table. We are adopted because of his great love for us. And this picture of adoption that you have a new name and that your past debts are canceled and that now you are an heir to all of the good things that your father has to give, that those truths of adoption in this world are true spiritually because we are in Christ. And this picture of adoption in the New Testament has driven the church over the years to be the people who care for children, who lead the way in foster care and adoption, who are always looking for ways that how can we live out the truth of adoption in our own families. And it's a beautiful thing, and my family has had the gift of being able to walk through this. If this is something that you feel called to or you feel able to support with adoption and foster care, let me tell you just a couple of cautions up front. Uh, This analogy, we gotta be careful with it. Sometimes we can say, well, God has adopted us, so we're gonna go out and adopt others. That's, that's right, except we're not God. In, in those situations, sometimes people are drawn to adoption a little bit out of trying to be a hero. Uh, if you're looking for a way to be a hero, I would suggest you find another way other than adoption because it does not feel particularly heroic uh, most of the time. Most of the time it is a, a journey of a lot of pain and difficulty, a lot of joy, but, but also a lot of difficulty. And, and in the truth of the New Testament, when we are adopted, we are adopted out of a place of slavery and darkness and evil. And we have to be careful with that analogy because if you carry it too quickly into contemporary adoption, then that birth family becomes representative of, of evil or, or darkness. And in many cases, in fact, almost every case, it, it's a place of brokenness, but that doesn't mean it's a place of evil or adoption, and so we have to, or, or uh, evil or darkness. So I just want us to be careful with that analogy. I, I think it's a powerful analogy. I'm at the front of the line saying we need to be pursuing adoption. We need to be pursuing foster care as the people of God, but we want to do it in a way that not only honors the Lord, but honors these families and honors these children, and how do we live this out as the people of God? This picture here of adoption, though, is a picture of the family of God. Verse six, let's look at these final verses here together. Verse six, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The truth of adoption is that it is ultimately relational, not transactional. If if my daughter, every time she wanted to talk to me or reach out to me, had to go and find her adoption paperwork, just to make sure she really was part of the family, and then she came and talked to me, you're like, that, that's pretty awkward, Owen. Like, that, that wouldn't work well. As opposed to when she needs something, she just yells, Dad! Because it's in her heart that the spirit of being a part of the family is built in there that she knows she can cry out. And this language here of, of Abba, Father, you know, sometimes a kid will cry out, and you're in the other room, and you're like, is that the happy cry 
or the sad cry. <laughs> like it's like right there on the edge. You can't tell, is that the pain cry? Like I need to run really fast or is that the excited cry? This language of Abba Father is the language both for praise and for crying out in times of suffering. And friends, don't miss that because you are a part of the family of God in Christ, how do I know I'm a part of God's family? Because it is within my heart that in times of praise and times of prayer, I cry out to God as Father. To be made right with God as judge is a good thing. To be made right with God as Father is greater still. To know that he loves you, to know that he cares for you, to know that he is always there to hear you cry out. So what's that, a sec- that second adoption our second family portrait. Think about an adoption ceremony at the courthouse, but you're wearing your graduation clothes, you've, you've come of age with your adoptive father's hand around your shoulder and keys to the house in your hand. You're an heir to all the good promises in Christ, but not just an heir, that you're a child, that you have been adopted, that you've been brought in to this family. Name, past debts canceled, all these promises in front of you. Two pictures of the family of God here. Baptism and adoption. Let me show you the final slide as we get ready to wrap up. Number one, what family t-shirt or jersey are, are you wearing? So, do you wear a t-shirt that says me? <laughs> Or do you wear the Jesus t-shirt, the one that has the cross on it? And don't forget, when we have put on Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives for Christ. Let me give you something to do this week. I'm not telling you, some of you are not even allowed to do this. I'm not telling you you have to wear a Christian t-shirt everywhere you go this week. But let me just give you a little thought experiment to do. When you wake up this week to get dressed, whatever you put on, think to yourself in the morning, I am putting on Christ. I am. As I go today, the decisions I make, the words I say, places I go, I am putting on Christ and I'm going to live as part of his family. Let's be a church filled with baptism pictures and adoption pictures. Think about the joy of being a part of a church that celebrates baptism and celebrates family. As we think about where God's going to lead us in the future, as we think about filling up our hallways with pictures of our church family. Baptism pictures, adoption pictures, everything that God has for us will come because of our hope in Christ. Let me pray for us right now and we're getting ready to wrap up. Fathers, we think about the way that scripture teaches us that we are your children, that we are part of the family of God. God, as we think about family pictures at our own homes, as we think about what it would mean to hang up family pictures here at Emmaus, God, thank you for this picture of baptism. That because of faith in Christ, our sins have been taken away. We do not have to fear death, and we have a new future. And so, God, lead us in the days ahead to pursue and to celebrate baptism. 
God, we thank you for the picture of adoption. We thank you for those who are pursuing foster care and adoption, who, who are loving families and supporting families who are doing this. God, I pray that as we become a church that loves and cares for families and young children, God, that that would be a picture of the gospel to the world around us. And God, lastly, we know that we, know that we live in a world that is so easily divided based upon things like ethnicity or economics or politics or gender. But God, thank you that in Christ that we are all one, that our hope is in him. And God, help us as a church to display that unity in the days ahead. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.